verse 2. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, there's, I think, one of the more stranger motivations for Christian behavior in all of Scripture. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, it says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Now, why should we not neglect this? Because, or for, by doing so, some have entertained angels unawares, which is a weird word too. All of this sentence is, I think, a bit strange. Not just because it mentions strangers, but just because it says, be hospitable, don't neglect this. Because you never know, you might be entertaining in your home angels. Now, first of all, to get kind of a basis for this passage, I think if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you're immediately thinking of what passage? Oh, is there somebody who brought people into their home in the Old Testament that this Hebrews writer, as we've been going through this book, he knows his Old Testament really well, and he knows of an instance where somebody brought in strangers, and then it ended up being that they were angels. Genesis chapter 18, Abraham is the person I'm referring to that brought in three men. One of them was what we believe to be a theophany, a God coming in some sort of visible form, and then two angels that were with that visible form of God. So it seems like he's referencing that issue here. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Because, hey, sometimes, and really very rarely, not normally does this happen. Genesis 18, Lot was another example. But other than that, there's not like the Bible's chock full of all these people bringing strangers into their house and, oh, guess what? I'm an angel. You know, the Hey, I'm Gabriel. So, I wonder though if you've ever had someone into your house and thought, that was different. That was almost like an angel. Now, I I think this whole conversation is like I introduced, a bit strange. Like an angel, like literally an angel? Or what does this mean? What is he referring to? I think it's much simpler in terms of the point he's trying to make that sometimes you just never know when you're doing kingdom-like hospitality, the great blessing you might receive when you bring in strangers who you don't know who they are, and you're welcoming and opening up your arms. I think that's the main point that's going on here. But I remember a couple years ago that my wife and I invited a man into our home, and we literally had the conversation, was that an angel? Like, Seriously, who was this guy and where did he come from? Because we invited him into our home because randomly one day I get a phone call and I have the caller ID on my phone and I don't have any idea who the number is and I answer and I say, hello, and they say, hi, are you so-and-so, Phil Howell, trying to start a new church in Chicago? And this was before we moved out to this area to start Embassy Church, and we were living on the north side of Chicago. And this gentleman said, I want to help you start your church. I'm like, wow, I have no idea. My name's Phil. What's your name? Like, all of a sudden, you 
answer the phone and somebody says, hey, I want to help you start a church, kind of taken back already. So that was my introduction to this gentleman. And then later on, I was talking to him and he's like, yeah, I'll do whatever. And he was just a really strange conversation. The whole thing was odd, but yet he was cheerful and delightful and very excited. And I was like, okay. So I said, hey, we're going to have some people over at our house and we're going to get together. We're going to study the Bible and we're going to pray. I'd love to be there. And so he shows up. And from the moment he walked in the door until he left, the whole thing was just this like, who is this guy? And after the night was over, we're just talking about it for hours because he's greeting everybody. He's so happy and loving and we're asking questions about the Bible. He's quoting scriptures left and right. It's like he knew the Bible like, like he helped write it or something, like an angel. Like we were just, who is this guy that knows his Bible so well? And then on top of that, he would say these poignant things that just was the right timing and it was strange but fitting and the whole thing, like I can't even describe how it was other than just say we were stunned. And to top it all off, at the very end, we talked about how sometimes we like to sing songs together to kind of close out the night. And he goes, can I sing a song? I'm like, okay, this night has already been enough. Like, and I had this internal turmoil going on. Do I let this guy take a guitar and start playing a song for us? What's he going to sing? And he sang this old spiritual song that the slaves in the early Civil War days would sing during their slavery, and just the fittingness of the song and the whole thing was just this amazing thing. Now, his singing and all the other things, like, it was okay. He sounded a lot like Bob Dylan, which we found out was his, like, hero, and so if you picture Bob Dylan playing the guitar, and he could actually play pretty well, singing this old spiritual song, and it kind of capped off the whole night with this perfect little cherry on top, like, Man, who is this guy? Now, sure enough, he ends up joining the church that we were participating with in Chicago, Edgewater Baptist Church. And surprise, surprise, he wasn't an angel. Uh, but he's a really sweet guy. And it was one of those moments where I was like, is this where this passage applies? Now, I'm not like a hyper kind of like look for demons behind every bush kind of person or, oh, there's... I don't know like where the angels and demons are at. They're invisible creatures. I believe they're real. I think they're in the Bible. And so I'm not like after every meal having a conversation with my wife about this. It was a very rare moment where I actually looked at this passage and said, hey, Christine, I think, I think this guy maybe, like if he, if he never shows up again and he just disappears off the face of the earth, I mean, that guy was an angel. I remember saying that to her. So other than maybe that one silly story, I, I don't think I've normally looked at this passage with some thought like I have this week. And I'm glad I have, because I think that there is a lot for us to consider as individuals and as a church. And not just debates after dinners and gatherings and like, hey, was that stranger an angel? I, I think that would be missing the whole point. The point would be to understand how Hebrews 1 through 12 lays out a beautiful gospel of God's welcome to us. And then in chapter 13, exhorts us as a church and as Christians to do the same thing to other strangers. 
So that's the outline for today. It's actually the title that's in your bulletin. So if you see the title, it says, The Gospel and Hospitality. What's the gospel according to Hebrews 1 through 12? And how does that gospel inform the way we live as Christians to live in step with the gospel and being hospitable? So first, what's the gospel? We're going to just fly through. If you want, you can follow along with me. I'm just going to reference a few things. If we start all the way back in Hebrews chapter 1, and when did we start this? Sometime in the summer? Maybe July? So if you weren't around, back in July, we looked at Hebrews 1, and we saw that God created the world through Jesus Christ, the Son, that's verse 1 and 2, and He sustains this world through the Son's power. So the gospel begins with a God who creates everything, and He sustains everything, and He puts us, human beings, in this world, and gives us all that we need to live and have our being. That's how the gospel begins. In the beginning, the Bible begins with God creating and giving to us all that we need to live. That's how Hebrews begins. And we find in chapter 2, if you flip your eyes over to chapter 2, there's a little indented section in verses 6, 7, and 8, and that's a quotation of Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is a song of praise about how wonderful God's creation is. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then the psalmist goes on to explain the beauty of the fish in the sea and the stars in the sky and the the mountains rising up from the valleys. But then it says in Psalm 8 that in this great, wonderful, grand creation, he puts man in the middle of it and says, what are you, God, that You made man and that you're mindful of him and that you care for him and that you made him just a little lower than angels and you crowned him with glory and honor and you put everything under his feet. Almost everybody that understands what Psalm 8 is saying is that it's an extended meditation and praise in song form of the one verse you find in Genesis 1 where it says, and God gave male and female the rule and dominion of the whole earth. That's what's happening here as Hebrews quotes Psalm 8. So here's the beginning story of the gospel. God, the creator, gives us the whole earth to rule and reign over. And this is amazing. It should cause us to praise him and worship him as the psalmist does. Out of all the things that he made, who are we that He would be mindful of us and even care about us and give any thought toward us. For Christmas, we were given a telescope, a powerful telescope to look into the stars in the sky. And I tried it the other night after all the cloudy, snowy days that we had. And it's just every time you look up into the wonder of the universes and galaxies and you feel how small you are, Psalm 8 becomes all the more crystal clear. Out of all these things, the tiny little speck that we are on this earth. He's mindful of us. And in further thought, in Hebrews chapter 2, it says that right now we do not see everything being subjected to us. You see that in verse 8 of chapter 2 in Hebrews. In other words, simple translation, the gospel story moves on and says not only did God create the world and give us reign and rule over it 
If you wanted to put it in hospitality terms, God gave us a home to live in, and he provided all that we need and the provisions to have this home and live here. But right now, our home isn't treating us so well. Right now, there's something wrong with the world. Our home is in disorder. The answer to the question, what is it that's wrong with this world, and why is our home in such disorder, is found just a a few verses down in chapter 2, when it talks about this idea in verse 14, that Jesus, through his death, destroyed the one with the power of death, that is the devil, and then in verse 15, deliver us through the fear of death, we're subject to lifelong slavery. This is act two in the story of the gospel that it begins with the wonderful creator God who gives us this earth and this home to live in, but it says that we are now in slavery. The story of the gospel of all of the Bible, in particular here in Hebrews, points out that we have death entered into the equation and that we now have fear of death and that all of us are trying to cope and manage all of these problems in our own particular ways. Friends, I don't know where you're at this morning. Some of you have been Christians a long time, and so you're well aware of this. But if you're a visitor here, if you're not a Christian, one of the most important things for you to understand is that there is something wrong with the general cosmic world, and there's something wrong with you in it. And that might come as a little bit of a sting or an ouch, but the good news that we have to offer at the end of this gospel presentation for you You will not be able to understand if you don't first realize that there's something wrong with the world and the people in it, including you. That you're enslaved. You have slavery, shackles around your wrists and ankles, metaphorically. But that slavery is more particularly throughout the Bible described to our slavery to our sin and our self-centered world. So, thankfully, we have a deliverer. Did you notice that? It says that through his death, that being Jesus, he can deliver all who are afraid of death and subject to this lifelong slavery. You know, another way to describe the problem is in the book of Ephesians. So if we kind of borrow some language from Ephesians chapter 2, it says that God's children, Israel, were exiles and that we all as human race are strangers and aliens and that we have been kicked out of this home. There was a wonderful, beautiful home in the beginning story of this good news gospel. This wonderful creation that God made, and we had a home. Do you remember how Genesis 3 happened? When sin entered the world, death came in, and this is that slavery and that subjection to death that we just read in chapter 2 of Hebrews. But in addition to that, you see in Genesis chapter 3 that they were kicked out of the garden, and therefore they were exiled and displaced. They were homeless, you could say. And ever since then, God's people and all of humanity has been searching and longing as wandering travelers to finally find their rest and their home. In Hebrews chapter 3, we get a, a glimpse that Moses is the one whom God was going to use in the story of the Old Testament from the people of Israel to be a faithful servant over God's house and bring them home. And so Moses would lead God's people out of slavery, the literal slavery of the Egyptians, pointing to a greater metaphorical slavery that all of us have, and lead us to the promised land, 
a temporary home that would foreshadow the great and final home when God would restore all things. See, this is the wonderful story when you kind of trace the chapters of Hebrews and not just take each little slice, but notice there's like a reoccurring or or, or a connected storyline of all these different parts. The writer of Hebrews is telling you the gospel. God the creator put us on the world and we had a home. And because of our sin, we ruined that home and we were kicked out and we're now homeless and wandering. But look at the story of Moses. Look at the story of Israel. God leads people out of slavery. He gives them a chance to come home. But in their disobedience and unbelief, they were not able to enter his rest. And that's what we found in the end of chapter 3. That those that were destroyed in the wilderness were those that didn't have faith in God's promise. And so he swore in verse 11 that Israel would not enter his rest. At least that generation wouldn't. In chapter 4, we find that this is all stories pointing to a greater story about how we too can be traveling, wandering, lost in the wilderness. We too are hopeless without a home, but God has promised us rest, so believe in his promise. And so he tells us, he commands us, look at chapter 4 verse 10, for whoever has entered God's rest also rested from his works as God did from his Right before that in verse 9, he says, there then remains a Sabbath rest for God's people today, now. So here it is. The story of God creating us a home, being restless, wanderers, lost, because of our sin, because of death into this world, we're not home and we're not domaining, ruling and having dominion over this earth. But because of what Jesus has done, Because of his death on a cross, because of his life that he lived, his resurrection from the dead, he now offers to us the invitation to come home, to rest, to join in on the final feast at his table. And so here's what we find in Hebrews, the wonderful story of the gospel. Notice in chapter 4, at the very end of chapter 4, We're called, let us with confidence in verse 16, to draw near to God. He's calling us back into his presence after we were exiled and removed out of his presence. In chapter 10, if you turn a few pages, you'll see the same call is made in verse 19. that The basis for us to come home is the blood of Jesus. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that was opened through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And we have a priest over the house of God, so draw near with a true heart, full assurance of faith. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel that Hebrews has delivered to us. So it makes perfect sense if we're going to be thinking in line or in step with the gospel, that if Jesus, by his blood and his life and all that he accomplished for us, has welcomed us strangers into his home after we've already ruined the first home that we were given. How can we not be hospitable to the strangers of this world around us? It would not be in line or in step with the truths of the gospel. You're saying that if you're a Christian here this morning, you've received this good news, that God has made a way for you to return home through the blood of Jesus, and have a final resting place. 
but yet you wouldn't be willing to offer temporary rest for somebody here on earth? That just doesn't make any sense. And that's the line of thinking when we get to chapter 13. So friend, have you experienced the good news of the gospel and God's welcoming embrace and his invitation? If you've not, may I be the first one to invite you today, right now in this moment. Rest in Jesus and in his promise and believe that through Christ's work on a cross, his resurrection from the dead, there is a home for you to rest in. And it's not this one on earth. There's something wrong with the world. And the solution that Jesus gives is much better than all the solutions that have been offered ever and for all time. So there we go, the gospel. Let's move on to our second point, which is, brings us to our text in verse 13, verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Let's look at what hospitality is. Let's look at why these people and why we are not being hospitable. And then let's look at why we should be hospitable. So these are three sort of subpoints under the category of hospitality from verse 2. So what is hospitality? What do you think? Before I give you the answer, put your mind to the test. What's hospitality? Entertaining people for a meal? You know, when I Google searched hospitality, you know what came up? A bunch of hotels and waiters and waitresses. And so uh, apparently, according to Google, hospitality, the first thing that comes up is serving people meals and hotels. You know, that's not too far off. The only difference is this verse has no idea what restaurants are like we know them, and waiters and waitresses in the same way, and they do not know the sort of hotels and motels that we know. All the hotels and motels back in their day were awful places. Uh, In one history reference, as I was researching this idea of hospitality, the person who owned a brothel was put on the same like playing field as somebody who was the innkeeper. So that kind of gives you a frame of reference. Inns or motels or places where people would stay for a few nights were awful places for bandits and thieves and run by swindlers and awful bad guys. So if you're a normal person, you try and stay away from those places, right? So if this is the only option for your travels, and add on top of that, traveling was so infrequent, like this was not a normal thing. You couldn't just get into your car and travel several miles or hours and get a long distance. So without the advances of planes and automobiles, people didn't travel as much as we do today. So therefore, the need for hotels weren't as much as they were in these days. I want you to just start realizing that when you read this word hospitality, don't start thinking 21st century modern ideas because they obviously didn't have those. We're we're going back in time. Every time we open the Bible, I've mentioned this before, we're opening ourselves up into a whole new world. We're crossing a a culture and a context. So realize that people didn't travel as much, so hotels were not needed. Also realize that hospitals weren't really around like they are today. 
And that some of the hospitality that was done in the name of Christ was to care for people that weren't just strangers or traveling or passing through, but those who were hurting. Have you ever wondered, whenever you've gone to a hospital, why so many of them have some sort of religious name to them? Lutheran, Mary's Hospital, Saint something, Saint whatever. You ever wonder that? Like, all of them have some sort of religious connection to them, or a lot of them. Do you know why? Because a lot of hospitals started from Christians who were being hospitable, who saw people who were hurting and in need and started bringing them in and caring for them. You know, at one point, uh, hospitality was so well known that one of the leading atheists of the, the day, he made fun of Christians by saying, the hospitality that Christians show, especially to strangers, is quite remarkable and even laughable because they believe their leader, Jesus, when he conned them into thinking that they are brothers and sisters. Interesting, isn't it? That a, a century after Hebrews was written, so this is the second or third century, a man would look at Christians who were taking these words in chapter 13 and other passages of Scripture very seriously and living by them. That they knew the gospel, that God had welcomed them in, even though they were strangers and aliens and exiles. That they were kicked out, but he wanted to bring them back in through Christ's blood, and that because they did that, Because he did that, they now were living very, very differently. And this was noticeable to other people around as they saw the way they cared for not only their own, their brothers and sisters, he says. Jesus conned them into thinking that they were their own family. Well, friends, those of you that were here last week, look at verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. You see, the connection between brotherly love and the family that we looked at last week and this love to bring more people into the family and love the stranger and the exile. What's so interesting about this connection are two two parts. One is the textual connection of verses 1 and 2, and the other is how many different times you see love for brothers and sisters and then hospitality put next to each other in the New Testament. So first, the textual connection in verses 1 and 2. Brotherly love. That's the word, what did we say last week? The city of brotherly love is Philadelphia. And so you, two parts of that word, Philadelphia, love of the brothers. That brings us Philadelphia. This word here that you have for hospitality is the same beginning root word, phila, and then exenia, which is the word for stranger, phila exenia. So if you're reading this in the Greek, it would say, Philadelphia, continue. So let brotherly love continue in the imperative. And then hospitality, the very next word is philoxania, love of stranger. Love of brother, keep doing that. And then love of stranger, don't forget, don't neglect the love of the stranger. So I think it's pretty obvious, especially if you're a Greek reader and you're paying close attention that he wants to connect these ideas together. But if that wasn't enough evidence, the second thing I mentioned was that the way hospitality and brotherly love are connected all throughout the New Testament. So for example, our scripture reading last week was from Romans chapter 12. And in Romans chapter 12, we're told to let love be genuine and love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. 
and seek to show love of stranger, hospitality. Now, if this wasn't put, like, it's not just, hey, some of you, you know, be hospitable. Pursue it. Seek it. Love it. Love brothers. Love strangers. This is an issue about your passion and love for other people. So, when we get to this next section, I want you to see the connection between why you are not being hospitable, potentially, and notice that probably it's because of your love, your love for God and others. Another example of this connection between love and hospitality is found in 1 Peter chapter 4. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, it tells us that the end of all things is at hand in verse 7. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So there's our love in verse 8, and do it earnestly. Verse 9, and show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Well, why add that little phrase, without grumbling? Well, because if any of you have been hospitable before, you know that sometimes it's not so easy. It takes extra work. What's easier for you to do today? Go home and take a nice long nap or potentially invite somebody over that has a little gift of gab and talk your ear off for a long time. Or maybe somebody who's really shy and you've got to keep trying to draw out. Man, that took a lot of effort to just have a conversation. Or maybe somebody that just loves to overstay their welcome. Man, they've got an amazing gift of awkwardness and rudeness. You know, if you invite someone into your home, you're kind of taking on that risk. One of my favorite examples of somebody who was not afraid to just be blunt and straightforward was one of the pastors at my previous church in D.C. His name was Pastor Andy. And Andy was just one of those, I'm going to shoot him straight kind of guy. So when he invited people over to the house, he would notice, okay, it's time to put the kids to bed. I'm getting a little tired. So he would stand up, he would walk over, he would grab their coats and say, hey, it's been a real great pleasure having you here today. You know, let me help you get this coat on. And it just was like, okay, it's time to go, right? I mean, some people don't have those great of skills. I know I was quite impressed with Pastor Andy's hospitality skills to say, look, you'll come at this time, and now, okay, now you will leave at this time. And some of us aren't that way, so, you know, we open ourselves up to the risk of having somebody stay and stay and stay, like, oh, I'm so tired, please go home. I mean, I'm just trying to be honest. The Scriptures is being honest. Be hospitable without grumbling. They may not help with the dishes. In fact, you did a lot of work, probably, to have your house nice and clean before they got there, and then they brought those kids, and they made that big old mess, and now you have to clean it up. You see, the Scriptures are quite honest. You're doing this out of your great love for people, not because it's going to put you at some sort of inconvenience. That's actually kind of the point. To serve people is to inconvenience yourself because you love them. And you're willing to lay down your life for them and open up your home. So what is hospitality? It is an act of love. An act of love for brothers, sisters, and even strangers. I think it's hard for me to figure out which way to take this word that we read in Hebrews 13, verse 2. 
There's really two debates that go on with how to understand what is hospitality. Is it love of strangers? And that's mainly what it's saying. So do not neglect strangers. And so therefore, our focus this morning, if we were to take that route, would be mostly on the stranger and the outsider from our church. Or should we say that because this word was used so regularly in the day, which it was, for talking about all kinds of hospitality, both Christians and non-Christians and strangers and brothers and sisters, that because it's so linked with the brotherly love that maybe he's just talking about be hospitable to your brothers and sisters. And then there's the idea that maybe it's the combination of the two. Say, for example, that letter that was read from David May earlier from 3 John. Do you realize that in this time that the gospel never comes to you and me without hospitality? Like, Take a moment to appreciate the hospitable sacrifices that early Christians made to spread the gospel around the world. If Paul the Apostle can't find a place to stay when he stays somewhere, if Timothy and others that are going around and they're spreading the gospel and you see these letters all through the New Testament, they're normally the parts of the letters that you're like, okay, I'm skipping over that. That's just a bunch of instructions. But they're instructful in this way. The gospel does not spread because the lack of hotels and the lack of inns, and the danger of those inns if Christians do not let traveling preachers stay in their house. So that's why you have these exhortations all throughout these letters, all throughout the New Testament. Love others. Love the gospel. Love the truth. So therefore, support these people and be hospitable. Think about this to realize the necessity and the centrality of hospitality. Elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3, what's in the qualification? They must be hospitable. Both lists for qualifications for leaders in the church have to demonstrate the example of leading in hospitality. And if you think, okay, well, I get that for an elder. But in 1 Timothy chapter 5, a woman that wants to receive support from the church because she's a widow and her husband has passed away, and she now needs financial help from the church, one of the things that she had to demonstrate for godly character was her hospitality. I think it's clear. The more we read the New Testament, the more we see that this was a big deal that marked off what it looked like to be a Christian in the early church. Because without hospitality, there's no spread of the gospel around the nations. And without spread of the gospel to the nations, you and I are lost and still homeless. So that's what it is. I think it's probably a mixture of the two, if we're going to come down to it. A loving care of bringing people in and caring for them in your home, not just a meal. A lot of times when we look at the New Testament and Old Testament context, every single hospitality reference seems to include having people stay in your house overnight. In fact, one resource that I came across said that there's even a code in the Jewish culture in the day where there was two nights limit, so that way people don't overstay their welcome, apparently. And then you'd have to go and find another house. And that was kind of code, like unwritten rules about hospitality. So there's a few things about what hospitality is. There's a lot of differences between what we think about it today and what they did. But realize its centrality for Christians and our need for it for the gospel to spread. Let's now ask the question, why are we not hospitable? By first looking, 
Why were they not hospitable? That's the assumption. Do not neglect, or you could put it this way, stop neglecting hospitality. That's the the verse before us. Stop neglecting hospitality. Why do you think these people stopped neglecting hospitality? Come on, we have gone over this again and again. I hope some of you are like, I know where he's going. Hebrews chapter 10. The only frame of reference I can think of in this book, because so much of it is about Jesus, so much of it is about doctrine and theology and all these wonderful, glorious, big-picture truths, there's only a few small instances where we get an idea of who these people are that he's writing to. And Hebrews chapter 10 is one of those clear places. And it says in Hebrews chapter 10 that when they first became Christians, they endured a hard struggle with suffering. So the context for these words is that they should stop neglecting hospitality because they know that if they bring these traveling preachers in, then that then identifies their house as Christian. And if your house is now marked as Christian, well, now the Roman government can now persecute you. Do you see the connection? It's not just be hospitable because that might cost me a little extra food or a little overstay my welcome. or It could cost you your life. And he tells them, don't neglect it. The stakes are higher. This is serious business. Persecution is rampant, and we're going to talk more about persecution in the coming weeks in this chapter 13. But for now, I want us to see that the reason why they were not doing hospitality was because they thought the cost was just too great. Their own personal self-preservation. Now, if we look at us, we need to ask, if we invite someone over for lunch today, will it likely lead to our execution? Uh, Probably not. So praise God for a a land that has, for this point, still to some degree or whatever, allowed for religious freedom. So praise God, right? We can gather here this morning, and although there's all sorts of terrorism going around and shootings and whatever— I don't typically come in here afraid someone's going to bust through the doors and start shooting everybody and that this is a terrible, awful thing that we should be afraid of our lives every time we gather. A lot of Christians, and even today, live this way, terrified for their lives, not because there's just random acts of terrorism, but because people hated Christians and wanted to see them removed from society. And the more they did that, the more Christians grew and the more Christianity spread because people continued to say, look, I'm willing to give my life for this cause. So the stakes are not that high for us at the moment. But when you think of the principle that the cost is high and we want to preserve ourselves, well, at the end of the day, the reasons are the same why you and I don't do hospitable acts of love and kindness. You want to preserve something about yourself and not give of yourself. You don't want to share and open up your home and expose yourself. Maybe you're like, oh, my home's too messy. That would open me up to, like, the disorderliness in my life. You know, you could clean your home or you could just be open about, look, this is just who I am. Because it's not like this command that says, okay, clean people, you be hospitable. Or wealthy people, you be hospitable. Because some of you are like, well, I don't have a nice place. I don't have a good enough spot for hospitality. I don't see qualifications. And my guess is you're about a thousand times richer than the people that this scripture is being written to. I think we just have a lot of excuses because we're in a self-preservation. We've 
don't want to give of ourselves like we ought. Or to put it simply, we don't have love. That's the connection. Hospitality is the overflow of our love for God and our brother and our sister and our neighbor. And our lack of hospitality is because that love and that zeal for love is lost. We have grown cold, and the more cold we are in our heart, the more insular we become. Have you noticed that ever in your life? That in the up and down journey of being a Christian, that when your heart grows cold, you tend to draw away from people and be more and more isolated. So therefore, you're not going to open up your home and be hospitable and a welcoming guest. Realize the connection between our love for God and the warmness of our heart for others and realizing this is the main reason why we don't serve and love people like we ought. I've struggled a good bit this week to figure out how much further to press. Those of you that joined us for breakfast, we've looked back at 2015 and we look at 2016. If there's one more thing I could add, it would be that this week and next week, that as we look back at the first couple years of embassy and we look forward, that God would give us the grace to grow in these areas. I think that these are potentially some of our biggest weaknesses as a church. I don't think that we're terrible at it. I don't want to say that we're not hospitable. I don't think that we're unloving, but I don't think we're doing as well as we could. One glaring memory as I was thinking through this idea and this passage, and I was thinking about the lady that came and joined our church for a few weeks or so. She was homeless. She told me after the church service that she was sorry that she, she couldn't stay awake during the service because the chairs were too comfortable and the room was too warm and she was getting rained on all night the night before. This woman was in our midst for several weeks because some church members were hospitably bringing her to church. But I have had this ache ever since I've been thinking about that story. I think we dropped the ball big time. Why in the world did our church, and myself included, not with warm, welcoming arms say, you're homeless? Her testimony, as she explained, was that she's a sister in Christ. Further guilt. Oh, dear God, why did we not open up our arms and bring her into our homes? This lady does not attend our church anymore, not because she was hurt by our lack of hospitality, but because somebody else was hospitable. A friend reached out to her and heard of her situation. This is one of those homeless stories where it's like she's doing everything right and situations and circumstances just seemed to catch her the wrong way. Because guys, there's something wrong with this world. It's not our home yet. All of us are metaphorically homeless until we find our final home in Jesus. She presents a beautiful picture for us that we should see in her, us, that's us. We're homeless. This is not our home. This is not permanence. But yet God has offered us a permanent final home. And he's welcomed us in. So therefore, when we see people who are homeless, why, why did we not welcome her in? Again, I, I, I'm struggling greatly. I don't want us to be overly burdened with guilt. But I think at the same time, we should probably feel the sting. 
On another hand, I was very encouraged that while my wife and I were in the hospital and we were able to offer up, hey, there's a couple that just had an unexpected pregnancy and could you as a church be hospitable and house them and love them? What a wonderful example of how the church did respond. And then the testimony of how that then spread to all of the nurses in the NICU department as we were caring for our son the last few months. And how they said this. This was one of the things that really stuck with me during that conversation. One of the nurses turned and said, we need more people like you in the community. We need more people like you and your church caring for these people because the hospitals can only do so much. And this week, that phrase reminded me, hospitals were started by Christians to begin with who saw the needs and the hurting around them and said, I want to open my arms the way God has opened his arms toward me. I want to love these people. And now we've got so far from that mission that now there's just different compartmental categories of businesses and places where we just kind of assume, well, hospitals are going to take care of those people. And nursing homes are going to take care of the elderly. And homeless shelters are going to take care of the homeless. And it's all kind of broken up. And this is, I think, both good and bad. I don't understand all the complexities of how we should address these issues. All I know is that the gospel's the same. Context and culture has definitely changed from this day to day to when hospitality was being done before. I think it's a lot more complex and there's a whole lot of issues I don't think we can work out in this one sermon. But what's true is that God has been hospitable to us and therefore we should welcome those around us. So when I look back at the last two years of our church getting started and I look forward at the next couple years, I'm hoping that we might see a turning point in 2016. A turning point not just in our heart's love for those around us, but I'm hoping we're going to see not just in this room, but those outside of the room. Our community involvement is probably, like I said, one of our glaring weaknesses. If any of you have sat through our membership classes, I've said, I don't want to make all of our community involvement based off of my passions as the pastor, and therefore they're driven by me. I want to offer to you God's word week in and week out, hopefully doing the best I can to be an example of the different things in it, and I'm sure I fail in many ways and doing well in other ways. But the point is, if I am going to be the one that's heralding all of our community involvement, then it's going to live and die on me, and that's going to be unhelpful for the health of the church. So if you've taken our membership class, you know that one of the things we've talked about is that I would like that God's word, as it pricks your own heart and as the spirit motivates, that we just get people that come together and say, hey, I think as a community group or as a group of people or even as someone that's going to say, I want to spearhead this movement and I want to try and get the church to go for it. And if the elders think it's worthwhile, then we'll give funds and help and resources to help those things. But what's sad to me is that over the last couple years, there's not been that many people coming with, hey, here's my idea for helping and engaging the community. Hey, do you think we could reserve some budget money for the sake of reaching people for this or that? For evangelism or making disciples, refugees, nursing homes. The list is so big, isn't it? We live in a Chicago metro area and the needs are huge. We could just pick any of them. What do you want to pick? Foster care? Homelessness, poverty, refugees, immigrants. There's so many different ways I think we could be serving in this community, and we've really not done much of any of them. 
So church, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Let your love for God and your brothers and sisters spread and flow as we ask more people to join the family and come home. Why aren't we doing it? Well, let's finally look how we can and why we should be hospitable. The reason given here in the verse is, for some have entertained angels not knowing who they were. They were unaware. And again, like I said earlier in our introduction, I'm not thinking he's saying, hey, you never know, Michael or Gabriel might come along. I think he's saying that when you are being hospitable the way Jesus taught you to be hospitable and you give of yourself, you will realize that you're getting a greater blessing in return. Something far greater and better than what you originally thought. You're inviting a stranger in, and hey, you never know, it could be an angel. Hey, you never know what God's going to do with that hospitality. He uses simple, ordinary things every day and turns them into wonderful, marvelous things. This is the way our God works. Simple, ordinary acts of kindness spread throughout all this community. This is how he gets praise and glory. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says, the reason why you're not invited into my kingdom is because you never fed me. You never clothed me. And you didn't visit me when I was in prison. And the people responded, Jesus, when did we, when did we not feed you? When did we not clothe you? When, when did we have that opportunity? I tell you, whenever you did it for the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. Do you think that there's maybe something like that going on in this verse? That when we show Christian hospitality the way Jesus says, hey, when you have your next banquet, don't invite all of the high and mighty of society. Invite the outsiders that nobody would ever invite. When we start living like that, we might start to see that there's a greater and more amazing blessing coming back to us than we originally thought. Like, wow. Like the surprise of realizing I just entertained angels. I just entertained Jesus. That in the face of the outsider, we see the face of Jesus. So we can do this by first, I think, being hospitable here as a church, inviting guests to our church, inviting guests out to lunch or to our home after church. I love the example that I've seen many different churches from many different people. They plan on Saturday night to make a meal knowing, all right, I'm inviting somebody over. I don't know who it is, but somebody's coming to my house today for lunch. I mean, think how different your mindset would be in a hospitable manner if you already knew I already did all the work to get the house ready and clean and cook. I'm making sure that's getting used up well. I don't want that to go to waste. So now you're looking. You're at church and you're not thinking about me and me and me. You're thinking, all right, who should I invite today? Was there a new visitor today? Okay, I'm inviting them. Maybe there's so-and-so I have not connected with a while. I'm going to invite them. I know anything like this. I'm just giving you ideas, hoping to spur you on toward love and good deeds, brothers and sisters. What are some ways that you can be hospitable? Invite coworkers or neighbors to your spiritual home or your physical home. Come to weekly breakfasts that we do here at Embassy Church and don't just sit with the same people at the same table every week. 
One of my hopes is that we would see the breakfast time or the lunch times that we do, whatever we end up doing in the years to come, that this would be a wonderful opportunity for us to have more of a formal service where we're sitting, I'm doing a lot of talking, you're doing a lot of listening, but then something happens where we sit around tables and we're loving hospitably the people around us. Not just a a mere, hey, nice to meet you, but hi, what's your name and who are you? Where do you live? How can I pray for you? What's going on in your life? I think the more that culture can be established, the more hospitable our church will be. Another way I think we can serve hospitably to the outsiders as a corporate church, serve as an usher or greeter. That's a wonderful ministry to be the first face that people see. And sometimes that first face is the children's ministry workers. Be a wonderful host That when guests come and they have children, are we going to be warm and welcome and inviting? Are we going to even have enough children's ministries workers? Are we going to have to close the children's ministry down because, well, we don't have enough people that want to serve? What would be the best way to serve those from the outside? Here's just some different ideas. But friends, if all you do is take the guilt that you might feel, I don't know if you're feeling guilty, I have been, Personally, corporately, as the leader of this church, I've been thinking about this area all week long, a lot longer than you have. You're just like, oh, wow, hospitality. There's a little shot. Oh, well, imagine that again and again. And so all week long, how do we do this? The gospel and hospitality. If all we do is just hear hospitality, so imagine today the message was, Do not neglect to show hospitality. And we act like there were no verses before or after it. What a disservice that would be to the text, but what a disservice that would be to your heart. Because all you would do is feel that guilt and be like, oh, all right, I'm going to do something this week because that's what we do. I'm I'm going to get hospitable this week and next week. Saturday night, I'm going to make a meal and I'm going to invite someone over to church. How long does that last? Not very long. Guilt does not lead to true repentance. That kind of guilty feeling, that's worldly guilt that leads to a worldly sort of sorrow. But there is a godly guilt. There is a a godly repentance. And it's motivated not just by the conviction you feel by the Spirit, but by the motivation of Christ's amazing love towards you in the gospel. The most Amazing meditation that helped me this week with the guilt that gave me further courage and motivation and strength that I think will last longer than just a temporary guilt was when I looked at Jesus and I saw that he became a stranger. Okay, we just celebrated Christmas. It's amazing to think that God came down to the earth. Agreed? Amen? God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the infinite almighty one becomes a little baby. Amazing. Hallelujah. Wow. We should celebrate that. Okay, Christmas is over. It's more than that. Everything about his birth and everything about his life says, I became not just a human being, but a stranger, an outsider. John chapter 1 says that the one who made the heavens and the earth The word became flesh, and he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He came to his own people. Jesus was a Jew, and his Jewish family rejected him. 
The Jewish king Herod wanted to kill him right from his birth. That's what we just looked at a couple weeks ago. And all through his life. Remember the phrase in Jesus in the Gospels? Foxes have holes. People have places to lay down their head, but the Son of Man has no place to lay down his head. Jesus became a homeless, wandering stranger. And if you think, okay, where are you getting that idea? That's in the mind of the Hebrews writer. Follow chapter 13 down from this call to being hospitable and look down at verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Friends, would you meditate today on the great, wonderful news that Jesus Christ was sent out, outside the camp, outside the gate. The gate was the place in the Jewish culture, the tradition I told you that there was customs about, okay, the gate was the place you would go to if you were wandering through and you were traveling and you'd stop at the gate and you would wait and you would have people come and greet you and bring you into the home and there was some sort of customs and rituals, but the gate was the place where they would meet. And the gate was the place that you would bring someone in to your home. That was the starting place for hospitality. Jesus was not brought in. He was kicked out. Suffered outside the camp. Outside the camp because Jesus was defiled by all the sin that was put on him on the cross. And as he bore all of that sin, just like in the Old Testament sacrificial system, he can't be near the holy things. He needs to be sent out. In the same way they took the old animals, carcasses, Uh, their carcasses. That's what I was looking for. And they would put them outside with all the unclean and dirty things. Jesus became unclean and dirty. Friends, are you seeing that in Jesus, he did not just come down to the earth, but he came right where you and I are at. Where are we at? We're unclean. We're out. We're homeless. We're a wanderer. We're dirty. And therefore, we're outside. And the only way for us to come in is if Jesus comes outside first. And he did. That's the gospel. That's the wonderful connection between our hospitality and Jesus. In just a moment, we're going to sing the wonderful hymn, Come Thou Fount. Do you know the line I'm thinking of? Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. Hallelujah that Jesus seeks out strangers like you and me when we've wandered from the fold of God rescued me from danger, and interposed his precious blood. The blood of Jesus brings us home. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks this morning because you are a great God. Everything about you is good and lovely and wonderful. Your word is true. It's reliable It's helpful, it convicts, it instructs, and it builds up. Thank you that your gospel can bring a a deadly blow and a punch to our gut and our soul. When we look and realize the ways that we have failed, not just as a church collectively, but individually. And thank you that the gospel brings us good news. That Jesus comes out to churches and to individuals that have lost their way and he brings them back. Thank you for inviting us in when you should have 
by all sense of it, you should have just left us. There's no reason that we deserve your seeking us out and searching us and bringing us home. And at what cost? Thank you, Jesus, for the amazing cost of your blood. None of us will ever be as hospitable as you have been to us. None of us will spend anything close to what you have spent toward us to bring us in. God, may we remind ourselves of that every single day. And especially as we try to respond with faith and with action to not let these words fall on deaf ears. Give us that grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.